0: Good evening, folks. Welcome back to In the Chill of the Night, episode 19. I'm here with my co-host, George Belsky, and we're delighted to be joined by Kevin Grogan, a former Savannah Chatham Metro PD, homicide, and uh, he's got a story to tell. And George, I understand you know parts of that story intimately, so I'd love to be able to turn this over to you. And maybe you can give us a little better introduction in terms
1: of what we're going to talk about tonight. Yeah, hi everybody. Um, so back when I was the resident agent in charge of Savannah, uh, our guest Kevin Grogan was a Savannah Savannah-Chatham Metro uh, PD officer, and he partnered with one of uh, my agents, Toby Taylor, and they formed a joint initiative that the the best way to describe it would be a community policing initiative uh tied to a federal hammer and we went into two of the worst neighborhoods in uh Savannah where crime and dope were rampant it was difficult for people to live and I'll let Kevin talk about uh what prompted this but we combined um local law enforcement, what, what we now call um, data-driven investigations, uh, intelligence-driven investigations into this area. Uh, we combine it with, uh, of course, federal partners, our state partners, city government um, and city uh, housing and, and various parts of the city government to bring everything together plus we involved the community told them what we were doing told told them why we were doing it and so there was a bunch of outreach and kevin and toby ran with this um i just every now and then would have to pull back on on the choke chain and and get them back inside left and right limits um but it was incredibly successful we brought down uh, aggravated assaults by 61 percent uh in two years property crimes down as well uh and also cleaned up the neighborhood and made it made it safer for folks so um kevin's just written a book called uh ruffian which is uh newly released right here um get it it's a great read uh and talks about this initiative not just in the historical sense of what we did but how this these same principles Can be used in other places and that was a very long intro but uh i just wanted to to paint a picture of uh of my buddy kevin grogan kevin brother welcome to the show uh congrats on this book and um, let's kick it off tell us tell us how a kid from hartford winds up in savannah georgia
2: First of all, guys, thank you very, very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, especially with UGB. Uh, being, but how I wound up in Savannah was I joined a gang called the United States Army. Uh, when uh, <laughs> they dropped me down here in Savannah after a little time in Germany, uh, I hit Georgia in 2003, uh, and then they put me on the first thing smoke in iraq uh, Spent about 13 glorious months there, and then uh, came back. And it was right about the time where I was ETSing, uh, from the army. And I made a choice to stay here in Savannah. Uh, cause I was in Savannah for about three hours and knew I'd never leave. It's really (laughs) one of the prettiest cities in the country. It is. Uh, but then I, then I went to work, uh, in the housing projects of hitch village and realized there's another side to Savannah. That's not so, uh, touristy, but you know, I really got my feet wet, got, got, uh, Exposed and indoctrinated to what real violent crime was. You know, very, very, a uh, lot of drugs, a lot of gangs. Uh, and of course, that comes along with that is a lot of guns. Uh, but working in a housing project that is on the east side of Savannah, it's called Hitch Village. Um, ATF had an operation going, it was called Operation Raging Waters. And that kind of introduced me to the advantages of taking. Uh, Intel from the street uh, and combining it with uh, the feds and the way thing the way they got things done and that really opened my eyes, you know, so if, if I lock somebody up with. A couple of dime bags and a gun and whatever you know i'd see him for sure in another couple of months he would be right back out doing the same thing. But uh, when I got to participate and see what was happening in an OCDF, uh case the organized crime drug enforcement task force. Those guys went away for a lot longer and a light bulb went off of me. So I was like, whoa. But that was where I first met uh, Special Agent Toby Taylor and and the crew of the ATF in Savannah. Then I went off and worked narcotics uh, in a couple counties over right outside of beautiful Fort Stewart, uh, home of the Mighty 3rd Infantry Division. But then uh, when I returned back to Savannah, that was when uh, Toby and I got together. I wound up in the West Chatham Precinct in a, Neighborhood called Carver Village. Well, it's Carver Heights back then, but uh, it's traditionally known as Carver Village. And the violence and and level of drug dealing that was going on in that neighborhood, kind of, I was like, all right. But at that time, I had already seen uh, a few OSDF cases. I had worked a couple of gangs. I had I'd gotten to know um, the guys. And GB, you know, that's where I met uh, the years before. I had worked with Lou and Toby on a storefront out in Statesboro. So I had seen the the advantage of uh, combining the local effort with uh, the feds, and and how well we could do that. And that's that's basically how when I was coming back to Savannah, uh, Toby was trying to figure out how to get the operation running, and we dubbed it Sarge, the Savannah Area Regional Gun Enforcement Task Force. And that that's you know we got going from there, and that's you know that's where you and I first met.
1: I think we actually go back a little bit farther because when I first took the, the rack job in Savannah, you were at MACE, uh, the multi-agency crack enforcement task force down in, down in Liberty and Long Counties. And I, I think I met you. I, I love oh. the
0: names, by the way.
1: <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's got to be cool, man. There's yeah. got to be a CDI factor on every operation. But uh, and, and you know if that it, when, if when you come from the army, you have
2: to have cool acronyms.
0: Yeah, absolutely name right. and operations—that's like incredibly important,
1: right? It's got it. Yeah. It's got to have the CDI factor, right? Chicks dig
0: it,
2: right? It's got to and the branding
0: sure. and the branding aspect sure. too, right? Yeah.
2: Well, it's it's how you get to make T-shirts and shit.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, uh, and, and you were working with Al Cato, who was a phenomenal uh, investigator, and uh, and then um, you left Mason and went back up to up to Savannah. So by the time you actually were on your second run at Savannah, Savannah Chatham, um, you were a really experienced street cop and a really experienced uh, investigator. Um, and I think, um, I think that uh that background of wanting to take it to the next level hey you know we we popped a guy with a gun um yeah he's a convicted felon and we can get that adopted but where can we take this um like like uh you pop somebody for dope can can we run this up the food chain and see where we go so you already had that attitude uh or those that skill set developed um did it when you went back to carver village now haven't haven't had that investigative experience did you feel a little uh a little more comfortable being able to to connect the dots i was hugely hugely and probably overconfident
2: uh at that point in my career the, the thing is i had i had seen what raging waters did which was you know three gangs in savannah that were tearing it up uh then i went out to mace and uh worked some on the storefront out in Statesboro, but at the same time that I was doing that, I had identified a gang uh, that was called the Dog Pound out in Liberty in Long County. And we OSDF that, but that was, you know, a bunch of search warrants, a whole bunch of investigation, as opposed to the very proactive patrol style things I had done in Savannah. Uh, But when I was able to combine the two of them, uh, by the time I got back to Savannah and when they plopped me in Carver Heights, I knew like, I knew what I was looking for at that point. And it just so and, happened. Uh, that and
0: what was that? The
2: the thing is, if you pulled into that neighborhood where, when I was on patrol and, and didn't know my ass from my elbow, I would pull in there. There would be tags on the walls, you know, HVC, HVP for whatever the neighborhood gang was, uh you know that's kind of where i left it i'm like okay i'm in hitch village i understand that's that but no big deal but once i started getting into some of the homes uh it it was the same thing out in liberty county but you would see dpg everywhere But when i started doing search warrants and seeing the t-shirts and the pictures of these guys together with guns and drugs and holding up you know their various gang signs and all that i was like okay well now we go so when i got to carver Heights. the t-shirts, all that, all that stuff meant something to me. Wow. So I started to link. And then, you know, we got on social media and identified a bunch of these guys and and immediately like, okay, when you started looking at their criminal histories, they were significant. These were guys that, you know, if they were still uh, involved in the game, they were definitely people that needed to go. And uh, after a very short period of time, we realized, yeah, these, these are definitely uh, the types of guys we need to remove from the neighborhood.
0: And and, I'm sorry, George. No, go ahead,
1: Ray. Go ahead. I
0: was going to say, when you say the guys are removed from the neighborhood, is that just an assortment of, of uh, folks that are, are selling at the same time murderers too?
2: No, these, these guys, you know, I think the term now is they were the drivers of violence. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, they were the guys that were out on the streets doing street level uh, robberies. Now they weren't, Uh, They were dealing drugs in their neighborhood, but they weren't uh, shooting and robbing in the neighborhood. But we identified, uh, you know, there were two murders. There was one uh, on the east side of Savannah, which this neighborhood's on the west side. But at an IHOP, there was a murder where two of the guys that we identified were involved. Then there was a shooting downtown that involved a sawed-off shotgun and a pistol. And they were downtown, but they were all from this neighborhood and they called themselves the uh Carver Village Thoroughbreds so you would see CVT everywhere mm-hmm. and I'd be stopping guys and they'd have CVT tattooed on their arms and this that and the other but that's that's where Ruffian came from you know it's named after the uh uh championship racehorse from the 70s
0: yeah tell us a little more about that piece like why Ruffian
2: yeah it, you know it, it's kind of like a it's my emotional and Artistic side, you know, uh, <laughs> I had, uh, I had read a lot about Ruffian and because at the time, uh, you know, I was dabbling in the horse trade, uh, buying and selling thoroughbred ro- race horses. So I read about Ruffian and, and her uh, reputation was just absolute tenacity. You know, she, she was about winning she was a young filly, you know, at, at two years, they, they put her in uh, the equivalent of the triple crown for like Secretariat and them. And she won everything. Wow. But uh, she was doing a stakes race in 1974, I think. And they put her against the, the main stallion and they were running and she snapped her leg Oof. like a catastrophic injury. So they put it out, but she, they couldn't get her to stop. So when she finally laid down on the infield, they uh, gave her anesthesia and they brought her into the stalls. And when she woke up, she just started running again. Wow. So now she's laying in the stall and she's kicking her leg and, and hurting herself to a point where they couldn't repair it anymore. And they had to uh, euthanize it, but she was driven. And you know, what made her so successful as a racehorse was that tenacious uh, drive and the way to go at it. So as soon as I saw, uh, that the gang had named themselves some thoroughbreds, we were gonna we were gonna investigate it with that same type of tenacity.
1: So I love Ruffy it. I love it.
0: Play. Thank you for that.
1: Yeah, and Kevin, um, when you and Toby came into my office and sold this, there was there was the story that said, "Hey, man, this is why these guys uh, tell us tell us that story because because it, it's a it's a tearjerker."
2: Oh man, I I tell you, it,
1: it, every time I tell
2: it, I still get pissed off. Yeah, you know it, it really was one of those things. So uh, when I came back to Savannah, I wasn't in an investigative role. I was a I was a beat cop, and uh, you know I didn't have a lot. I didn't have any seniority other than experience. But they put me in, and I stuck my nose in the city, which the city beat for uh, the West Chatham precinct was Carver Village and Cloverdale and and that. But when I got into Cloverdale. Pardon me. When I got into Carver Heights, I was riding and I I get a call from patrol. So uh, I roll up to this house and basically it's a 75 year old woman uh, who was caring for her 55 year old handicapped son who was sitting in the fenced in backyard playing with his puppy. So he had this little pit bull puppy was sitting in their cleared out backyard uh, when some thugs. Uh, approached him and said, "Hey, give us the dog." You know, and here's this 55-year-old man, defenseless, playing with his puppy in his backyard. And he said, "No, no." So the uh, mother came out and ran the kids off, saying, "Leave him alone. You know, he, he's not bothering you guys." And they're like, "Give us the dog," and she said, "No." So the little shitheads uh, threw a rock through the window, to the side of the house, and then they decorated her 1984. Now this is. This is 2010 hmm. uh, and her 1984 Plymouth Caravan that she still had running. And that was in immaculate shape because, you know, it's the only thing she really owned. They just peppered it in condiments and, and dumb kid stuff. And I was like, man, th- this ain't good. And as I'm standing there taking this report, I look down on the corner and there's a roll call. Uh, you know, it's just a spray painted thing of T.I.P., thug in peace and it had four names i'll never forget it hb uh tp uh scooter and bossy and i was like man so having had the gang experience at that time i looked i knew it exactly what it was and i'm like all right these little shits need to go and granted that the guys that kind of kicked it off for me and, and caught my interest were juveniles but the ominous uh presence of a roll call like that which you know anybody in a gang investigators role knows what that means these are guys that were uh killed in their line of duty uh and you know they're the ones that show up on t-shirts and and graffiti in a neighborhood but as soon as we got that i started to identify uh everything and everyone that i possibly could and toby and i went through social media and gb i think it was like six hours of us texting back and forth and we had uh, we had about fifteen to twenty members of a gang. Yeah, uh, and just oh, man, to- I, I, I'll never, I'll never forget that old lady's face. You know, they, they an eighty-four caravan, and they, and they, wow. you know, this, this, Carver Heights. You know, it, it's just like the housing project that I work in. You know, that I learned how to police in. Ninety six, 97 percent of the people that live in that neighborhood have busted their ass their entire life. And, you know, in in a Section 8 type experience, you got people who are just trying to get back on their feet. But you have that three percent that come in and make it miserable for everybody. I mean, they held they held those people hostage and and, uh, like it was I mean, it was a visceral uh, reaction to it. Like I was pissed. I was standing there on the corner and it was like they they messed with my grandmother's house.
1: And so that, that's um,
2: how we got roughy and running.
1: <laughs> yeah. And and so from there, you know, I, I was an easy sell, right? Um you you tell me we're gonna go hunt bad people, and oh, by the way, the bad people are are preying on on defenseless people in their neighborhood. You pretty much sign me up, I'm gonna get you whatever you need. So I was an easy sell. Um and then we had to basically borrow him uh in a tdy assignment because he wasn't a detective he was he was just a, a, i don't mean just in a in a bad way but was you know humping house calls as a patrol officer um and so we had to convince the savannah chatham metro uh command staff um of what we were going to do um and go into that a little bit kevin
2: that was just like the rest of my career. Absolute luck. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, my uh, my first book that wow. I wrote, uh, it's called Black Sheep, White Cop. It was about a uh, uh, crime suppression unit I had been on earlier in my career, but it's a very highly aggressive patrol unit. We, we were, in addition to patrol, like, you know, you'd have guys humping calls, and then we'd just go in and clean up. We'd just jump corners go out and you know we went after the bad guys that we could and we were county wide so we were all over And the amount of intelligence that we gathered then and it was four years before this operation but uh i got to know the city i got to know the players i got you know but my sergeant a guy named greg capers who is kind of infamous here in, in uh savannah but hell of a cop this is a guy who Let us go out and do our jobs. And and we pushed it. And I'll never forget the speech that he gave us. He said, Look, you're gonna go out there. We're not stopping little old ladies. Go out and get the bad guys. And he said, When it's all said and done, I want you guys to remember one thing. These guys have rights. I don't care how bad they are, they got rights. We're gonna come to within an inch of them, but they have rights, and don't you forget it. And man, that's how I learned how to police. They let us go. Uh, and Chief Willie Lovett, who's another controversial figure, but You know, he never stopped us from doing police work. He encouraged it. So when I came back uh, and Ruffian was in the formation stage, Capers was in uh, the Savannah area regional intelligence center. And he was the gun detective and chief Lovett was the um, chief and they're like GB not hard sell. If you tell them you're going to go get the bad guys and you show them that you have a brain about it and a plan they were all about letting us go do it. So, you know, and I was just one body. So even though it put a little strain on uh, and I feel a little guilty for the people that got stuck uh, humping calls while I was out having fun playing with the feds, but you know, they'll let me go do it. So, and it's one of those things when people give you an opportunity, you can do one of two things. You can go, you know, half-ass it and be like, Oh, I'm working with the feds. Or you can go kick ass, which was what I tried to do. And uh, uh, you know, when you work with great bosses, uh, which I always had the luck of, you know, and they let you go out and do your job, it, it makes going to work every day fun.
0: I don't know how to follow up with that. Um, <laughs> I actually want to hear a little bit more about what a typical night was like then, because All I, right, I got to tell I, you, when, no, when no. I picture Savannah, like. I've been down here several times, and it's just got this, uh, like, almost uh, air about it. Like, it's just a really a cool place to be. Um, I, not that I never thought there was crime there, but I just can't picture that until you're you're speaking about it. So maybe you can tell us about what a typical night was like.
2: It's the Boston of the South. You know, it, it's a beautiful, historic Southern city. But it's alive. It's very, very alive. You know, we got the third largest port on the East Coast. So the amount of dope that comes in and, and you know, everything that is wow. associated with that uh, amount of dope is found in Savannah. And the other thing is, if, if you look at the juxtaposition of the beautiful, the only industry that we really have here in Savannah is tourism. And, you know, if you watch movies like uh, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil and you come in and you see these glorious and beautiful 100 year old live oak trees right in downtown as you're walking down the main street you're like wow what a beautiful city and you walk down jones street which is one of the most wealthy streets in the country and you see these beautiful brownstones you're like wow big time money no doubt about it but if you go two blocks to the east or the west you're in some of the most violent and poor housing projects so you know you think about those kids who sit there in absolute squalor and two blocks away, you see people, you know, driving Ferraris and, and motoring around that those two worlds are way too close for them not to mix. And man, the the clash that comes in there because, you know, little secret people like to deny it. But rich folks like drugs just as much as poor folks and those worlds intermingle quick.
0: Wow. And, uh, and I guess when they intermingle, uh, bad things happen, right? In terms of violence, too.
2: Yeah, and the thing is, you know, robbery is a big thing, but everybody, and here's the thing, I get my best friend from nursery school, uh, pretty much, he's a physician's assistant up in Boston, and his, uh, the physician, the the actual doctor in his office, his little girl is coming down to go to the Savannah C- College of Art and Design, and this guy, you know, was really concerned, you know, he's very, he's very protective of his daughter, so he did a lot of research on Savannah, and he looked at the crime, and was like, holy crap, you know, is it safe? And, you know, I know the underbelly of Savannah. Like I've seen the worst of the worst of it. And and what I always tell people is Savannah is a safe city. Unless you dabble into the drug world. If you go to buy crack, sell crack, middleman a deal for crack, as soon as you expose yourself to that, to include marijuana, pills, whatever, as soon as you dabble into that world, Savannah becomes very, very unsafe.
0: You know, we it's funny because we say that in other parts of the country, too, is as long as you don't it's universal, decide, I think. Right. As long as you don't decide to be an entrepreneur and want to set up your own drug set, you shouldn't have a problem.
1: But many folks That's do what the saying
2: is play stupid games, win stupid prizes.
1: There you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, Kev, who was it? um when we were sitting down and we knew, uh, I knew that, you know, doing, doing the investigative angle was, was, I don't want to use this term lightly, but that's the easy part, right? That's, that's what we do. Um, you know, we can do investigations. We can, we can do uh very aggressive pinpoint, Hey, we're going to target uh, this group. We're going to do these folks in this area. That was, and that's, you know, that's where the, the gang stuff comes in and, and ATF, um well known for its its blue collar uh law enforcement working with with state and locals um one of the things that made this unique from uh raging waters and some of our other stuff was we actually got city government and then the community leaders uh behind us if i remember right we even met with um the savannah chapter of the uh naacp uh and brought them in and and uh Told us what we were going to do. We had some church leaders there. Um, how did how did those meetings go? I was only at some of them, but how did those meetings go? Maybe you can expand on that. And what was the attitude of the folks uh, when we told them what we were going to do?
2: I tell you what, the it that's really kind of a twofold answer, and and it can be summed up with one answer. It's the genius of Toby Taylor, you know, Toby, uh, who's now the chief of force review for the atf yeah toby's a big picture guy you know toby could look at uh statistics he could look at neighborhoods uh and and figure out faster than anybody i've ever worked with like hey what do we do and like you said the the investigation part was easy that's just what we do you know what i mean that that was our expertise and he and i especially at that point we had done so much gang stuff so much gun stuff so much dope you know we knew how to do it and uh Like I said, those guys were lining up to identify themselves on social media and and leaving their trail everywhere so it wasn't it wasn't uh brain surgery at all to do that. but Toby's the one that said, look we we need to really come up with a two prong thing and at the same time that that was happening, uh, a local pastor, a guy named Ricky temple because uh violent crime had been on the rise, and what he wanted to do was get community leaders like the mayor, the chief uh the District One Alderman at the time, who's now the mayor, his name's Van Johnson. Uh, he wanted to get everybody together to sit down at the table, and there was the genius of Willie Lovett. Willie said, "Hey, this is the operation that we're going to do. You guys come tell them what what you're going to do." And we took the roadmap that uh, Toby had come up with uh, in your office, actually in the conference room at the ATF. We, we drew out basically a roadmap and said, "Look." We're going to go get the guns. We're going to go get the drugs. We're going to identify this gang. But at the same time, we need to get a very city angle. And the city of Savannah has a, uh, line essentially it's three, one, one, as opposed to nine, one, one. And we would roll into that neighborhood every day and see graffiti on walls, see it on the street, see it in the park, see it everywhere. And we would just call three, one, one. And man, they were a hit squad. When we called, they came right out and, uh, got rid of the graffiti they boarded up uh you know broken things in the park they really you know kind of a broken windows uh theory thing but they came right out and did it and that was a city and and, and you know
0: what's funny is that is such a an effective way of cleaning up communities and so many cities don't put the attention that they should to that would you guys agree
2: yeah 100% think about the message that that sends though if you think about that like look not only are we not going to let you deal drugs, not only are we going to run you off corners, but we're going to erase any sign of blight. We're going to erase any sign of your gang and criminal activity from the thing. Cause we don't want the people in this neighborhood looking at it. And, and that was effective immediately. They knew right away. And, and so Carver village was the first part of uh, the operation. And we were very overt about what we were very overt about being there. We, we, we put up a billboard. Uh, we handed out little five by six cards that crime stoppers and, uh, uh, who else? I I forget where the funding came from, but it was, it was crime stoppers and, uh, some city entities that helped us get all these things. Uh, and we handed them out and said, look, the police and the federal government, the ATF are here and we're going to crack down. We don't want you guys to be afraid to which, you know, (laughs) there's a, uh, chapter in my book that's entitled fuck you do your job because invariably if i walk into a situation at a shooting and i go to somebody that's a potential witness and i say hey can you tell me what happened invariably they're going to tell me fuck you do your job so we started doing our job before we asked them anything and you know we made it very clear that we were going to be there but the bad guys were not used to being police like that like if we were going to be in their face that much if we weren't jumping out on the corners and stuff like that, they thought we weren't doing anything. Well, that's when we ended. uh, That's when we began the whole uh, infiltration with informants and that kind of stuff and started buying dope uh, secretly there. But uh, that really, to answer your question, GB, that came from Toby's, you know, big picture thing and chief Lovett's uh, willingness uh, to do something different. Uh, But we knew because there had been an officer involved shooting the year before. So the police were not the uh, most popular game in town, but that's why we sat down with Al Scott, who was, uh, he was the Chatham County uh, commission chair, and he was the president of the NAACP Savannah chapter. And we sat down and said, look, we're not going after minorities. We're going to clean up a neighborhood. This is not a, this is not racially uh, based. This is just, uh an operation we're going after bad guys no matter what uh their race or gender or whatever was and you know the, the sincerity of again uh somebody as talented and smart as toby was you know they knew they knew we weren't bullshit we went down we sat in there we said look this is what we're going to do and th- the whole race angle went away you know and i think that's a huge prohibiting factor in uh what law enforcement does today is oh, you're just picking on us because we're whatever and and it's just not the case
1: yeah and we even met with um the congressman from that district if i remember right we had a had a meeting in there Kingston
2: or John Barrow came he came to one of the neighborhood association
1: meetings and that's what we
2: did you know but the thing was that to me was kind of the show part You know, that was when we went to the Neighborhood Association and the the people that came to the Neighborhood Association, they were all the elderly folks. They're the ones who had been there forever and stuff like that. Not at all involved in violent crime, not at all involved in anything. Their big concerns really were, you know, the trees getting cut away from the neighborhood sign, uh, making sure everybody was bringing in their trash cans on Tuesday and that kind (laughs) of stuff. But but we couldn't minimize that we we had that was their concerns so that's when that's when we really started coupling with the city to say hey okay well we're going to get code enforcement and you know a bunch of stupid things like i say stupid but a, a bunch of very little nitpicky things but it led us to a bunch of crazy things you know remember the nightclub that the guy was running
1: oh uh, yeah that's hilarious tell that tell that that's hilarious yeah. uh, We
2: so we had a guy who's a president of the neighborhood association he, after a couple of weeks, after we had started kicking indoors and putting bad guys in jail and, and really made a show of uh, locking bad guys up, people started coming out a little bit and saying, hey, you know, if you're going to do that, could you do this, too? Hey, if you're going to take care of that, could you take care of this, too? And they tell us about uh, this nightclub that's being run out of a guy's garage, basically. And I'm like, yeah, all right, You know, zippity-doo-dah. But then we thought about it. So there was a legitimate bar. Uh, on the outskirts of the neighborhood, this guy's paying his taxes. He's getting his liquor license. He's doing all of these things. He's operating within all the rules that the state of Georgia has set up for business owners to run an establishment for drinking and that kind of stuff. And as soon as he closes, this guy's got this bootleg bar running out of his sink that runs till three or four in the morning. Drugs, guns, uh, you know, drunken debauchery going on in this neighborhood. Till all hours of the night well, you know you want to live next to something like that so it really was a quality of life issue so we did the same thing we sent an informant in we made purchases of uh you know illegal alcohol you know non-tax alcohol we did a search warrant and and shut it down and man this place was like the copacabana uh, you know he had about <laughs> i think it was like 80 extension cords running into the garage and he had these old palm leaves that were going but all of these things were plugged into one outlet like the ultimate fire like if the fire marshal had seen that shit he would have he would have lost his mind but surround that electricity nightmare with all these super dry palm leaves and stuff like that he had one of those you know 1970s disco balls in it it was a really cool place i i would have hung out there had i known uh, had i known about it if uh, off duty <laughs>
0: Hey Kevin, you you said earlier about uh, your your former sergeant. I think it was your sergeant who talked about being uh, aggressive, but always ensuring that you're safeguarding people's rights. Uh, at the same time, you're doing crime suppression activity. How are you guys measuring effectiveness, and at the same time, you know, making sure that you're following? what uh what your sergeant had provided to you. So you're keeping the trust of the community.
2: Uh, it, the thing is, you know, I, I kind of start that out like this, you know, the big motto in Savannah today and, and a lot of communities, I think it started in New York, New York is, you know, community policing. And, and if you see something, say something. And we've taken a very laissez faire Then you don't want the police because of, you know, after 2014 with Ferguson, Missouri, all the way up to, uh, you know, George Floyd and that kind of stuff. You know, the trust in police is not there. Uh, You know, when that trust is not there and that trust has been eroded over all these years of sensationalized media, um, you you, got to look at what's really going on. And and I think a bunch of those cases, you look at them, uh, you know, if you look at the facts of the cases, they're not what they portrayed to be uh, in the media. But I go back to 2006 when we were running that uh, uh, operation. We went into neighborhoods and we didn't mess with the, we didn't mess with the little old ladies that were driving through their neighborhood, not wearing a seatbelt or the old, or the guy coming home from work and his headlight was out. Did he get stopped? Hell yeah, he got stopped. But as soon as we realized that he was not in the game and not doing anything, we cut him loose and we went and got those boys on the corner. Well, When the neighborhood sees the police going out there and actively actually getting the guys who they know are the problem, who they know are the bad guys. And and
0: who they're in fear of.
2: Who they're absolutely being terrorized by. When they see that their police department is willing to go out and put that kind of work in, that's where the trust begins. Okay, And the thing is, even the quote unquote bad guys. When they see that you're not out, you you know, when you're out there not screwing around and you're not violating rights, you're not, you know, when they know they're wrong and you're addressing them being wrong, there's a respect that grows there. You know, you can you can I, I can't tell you how many guys that I've been in physical altercations with that when they were done. They're like, man, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just got scared. I didn't know what to do. I'm like, yeah, that's cool and all, but you're still going to jail. They're like, oh, yeah, 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 you're doing your job. You know, but it, it's all, it's all about respect, uh, you know, between the cops and the bad guys and the cops in the community. But as soon as you show that you are serious about what you're doing and you're, if you go into a neighborhood like Carver Heights and you say, Hey, we're going to help you, we're going to remove this criminal element and you go in there and you actually do it, man, that's how you earn the community's trust. And then you come behind it with the, uh, like George was talking about, you, know, you come back with it, with that community support, we would hit, uh, drug houses. You know, I remember they threw the flashbang in on a guy landed in his bed. And when we went into that house, the SWAT team almost fell through the floor because the building had no water. It was oh. The floors were rotten. It was falling in on itself. So when we took him out, you know, he wound up getting, you know, 10 years in federal prison for the gun and drugs. But right behind us, we brought the uh, property maintenance division from the city of Savannah and they came in and they boarded and condemned that house. Think about the message that that sends to the community. Yep. Not only are the police going to come in and take out the bad guy, but we're going to take care of the blight immediately. We're going to shut this down and nobody else is coming back in to deal drugs out of this house. You know That, that two-pronged approach, uh, you know, and that's what I think separates it from all those other investigations. We we put a lot of people in prison and raging waters and all these things. Uh, but I think, you know, anybody has been in law enforcement, Uh, Long enough, you know, you're not going to arrest your way out of crime problems. But if you make the right arrest, you take the right people out and they go away long enough. And then you go in with that second prong of actually giving a shit about the community,
1: it goes a long way. So we ran in Carver Heights. Was that maybe eight months around there? Yeah,
2: eight to 10 months, I think.
1: Yeah, eight to 10 uh brought violent crime ag assaults dropped by like 61 percent property crimes were down by like 35 45 something like that I, I don't remember the exact numbers down um and, and and made the place livable um and so you know where did we where did we go from that talk about where we went from there because we didn't just wrap it up no then then we
2: spent the next year in the epicenter of violent crime in the city is a neighborhood called Kyler Brownsville. Now that was a whole different approach because you're dealing with a whole different evil. Carver Heights was a, it was a problem neighborhood. There was a lot going on there, but it was not Kyler Brownsville. Kyler Brownsville uh, was really the epicenter of violent crime. The who's who of killers in Savannah resided uh, or originated from Kyler Brownsville. And if there's one neighborhood in Savannah where if you were gonna go Look for the bad guys, that's where that's where you go. So you know, Chief Lovett said, hey, you know we're doing great here. Can we move into collar Brownsville and see what we did? So you know that but that took an entirely different strategy. you know, that was a much we were not as uh, overt in our approach there. We went in immediately with informants and started buying drugs. but from the Intel that I had gathered shit, uh, you know, it was four years, five years earlier from being on crime suppression. We spent so much time in Collar Brownsville, but the same guys were doing the same thing in the same place in Collar Brownsville. So we knew all the players right from the jump. Uh, so we just started fishing. We we sent informants in and started buying as much dope as we can. But GB, as you well know, anybody can buy dope. You know, that's not the big trick it's getting to the guns and, yeah. and getting uh, getting uh, where you're actually purchasing firearms out of the hands of the bad guys. Uh, it becomes a very, very complex thing. And as you well know, you know, we ran in where very we dangerous. made mistakes. Yeah. Oh, very, very dangerous. And the, the thing is, if you get complacent, because we had had so much success uh, in the first half, you know, we go in, we'd buy dope, nothing would happen and everything was great. But now we started dealing with a different criminal element a much 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 more violent uh element and now we're introducing guns into every deal that we do uh and you know we kind of got a little complacent from the success and it wound up biting us in the ass a little bit not as bad as it could have thank god but you know like gb said there were times where he had to rein us in because we were we were doing so well we got overconfident and uh maybe a little
1: complacent So uh we go in a, and I remember that uh, you know that transition in the Kyler Roundsman, it was kind of like uh you were you were going from playing uh a division 2 uh college ball to playing in the SEC um and yeah. so uh it really became that uh, that uh we we buckled down a little bit but Ray this is something you and I have always talked about um, and and Savannah suffered from it, uh, but Chief Lovett made it made it change. Is there was a tendency in in a previous chief to just get intel. We got intel. We got this intel. We got intel. We got intel. And none now of it what? found its way. None of it found its way down to a detective to make an arrest. Yep. You know. So intel is great. That's cool. I'm all about reading and knowing all, but. At the end of the day, in my opinion, right, law enforcement intelligence is supposed to help you drive investigations, not just so you know stuff, but so you can go do stuff. It's the execution that uh, that really separates, uh, you know, the guys who were winning winning the big game to uh, from the the also rants. And I think with with Kevin's experience. Uh, Gathering intel and then putting it to use is really where where this part of the investigation uh, shined a little bit more. No, and the thing is, it
2: it was I, I call it actionable intelligence. You can know uh, as much as you want about a neighborhood or a gang or or uh, an operation. You can know as much as you want. If you're not going to do anything about it, what it's just a stack of papers. So you go to Comstat and you talk about what you know and that kind of. Stuff. But if you're not going to do anything about it, if you if you don't have the personnel or the ability to go in there and get, you you can tell a bunch of cops, hey, these are the bad guys. But how the hell do you catch them? So you know, again, having had that uh, experience with Toby, and you know, we had a lot of help too from the guys in the Intel Center, uh, other agents in the ATF office. You know, there was a lot of. Uh, you know, we did a lot of planning and and talking like, Hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? But, you know, the toys that that's a great thing uh, about a local guy getting to work with the feds is the toys for the feds are a hell of a lot cooler. (laughs) When we, we, you know, we wound up getting a, uh, a device that it didn't transmit, but man, did it record what was going on. So I was used to doing uh, audio recordings of, uh CI buys uh, informant buys controlled buys of narcotics and you go back I'd surveil the CI go to a location then they'd come back with dope and they'd hand it to you and you could listen to the conversation of yeah man I needed 20 or you could hear the conversation that was consistent with drug activity but now we could see it and and that was the thing you couldn't see it as it was happening but we would go we'd send the CI in and we sent them in on a bike which was made for great uh, entertainment of the
0: video. <laughs> he would
2: ride the bike into the neighborhood. He would meet up with guys, buy dope, and then he would come back. And before we downloaded the video, we'd have the CI tell us what happened. And he'd tell the story. Yeah, I rode to here. I rode to the 500 block, talked to this dude. He said, his name is this, blah, 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 blah. And then we'd go. And you know, you only trust your informants as far as you can <laughs> Uh but man, when we downloaded the video, this guy was on it. And everything he said, but we could verify it. He didn't stop and talk to anybody. So it 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 took away all the reasonable doubt. He went from point A to point B and came back to point A with no interruption. And the only conversation that he had was with so and so. And it's right there, as clear as I can see you. That's how good this video was. And I was like, Oh, this is the greatest thing ever. So, but Toby and I are actually thinking about selling the uh the video from that when he retires and we're going to do a show called crack bike where we're going to send a guy in with 6 dollars 37 cents a couple screws and uh half a piece you know half a piece of cake and see what he can come out with uh but it's it's a the video from that was unbelievable as far as evidence went because we could clearly identify where the where the CI would go and the guy would identify himself as red We would go and we would have a clear photograph of who this guy was. 80% of the guys I knew who they were on site. So that was a huge help. And the guys that I didn't know, you know, there were other cops in the, in the central precinct that were, you know, some of the best street guys I ever worked with. And I'd show them still shots from the video and they'd be like, Oh, that's so-and-so. And they'd identify them like that. We'd pull up jail photos and be able to ID these guys by, address the picture and you know so identifying the guys that were in that neighborhood were no problem and it was all consistent again with the in- information that we had already had we knew who the players were and we knew who the troublemakers were uh but man when we started buying guns it, it got uh it got super interesting because uh, you know i had done a lot of buying drugs uh and i had seen storefront operations where you're in control of the environment storefront operations i think were uh some of the best operations because from safety evidence standpoint the police controlled almost everything the only thing they didn't control is the actions of the of the suspects but when you're out on the street on their home turf the whole that whole ball field is different they're in control of just about everything uh and but to have it recorded the way we did was was phenomenal uh, and having that technology was tremendous. It, w-
1: it was a huge asset for us. Even uh, if I remember right, even uh, one of those deals, uh, they ripped the CI, did an armed robbery of the CI. And we had that on body cam, didn't we?
2: And, and that was the best armed robbery case I had ever uh, seen. Yeah, because <laughs> the, the thing is, you get that. But that was the thing. You know, we, we had gotten comfortable. Yeah. We this guy in so many times. Uh, and you know if if there's one knock on my investigative prowess uh, is again I got complacent. We had done so well every time we sent this guy in to buy guns and and buy drugs, he came out unscathed, no problem. But man, again, uh, we were dealing with a different kind of, kind of criminal, and this guy uh, who wound up being like the ultimate bad guy in the case. Uh, you know, the neighborhood Kyler Brownsville is from. 37th street and then it goes you know numerically 38 39 well the nine as they call it this guy's block his territory was 39th street five and 600 block at 39th street and he loved it so much he had three nine tattooed right on his face so he was uh easily recognizable and identifiable but this kid was bad i mean young kid too 19 years old uh, but suspect in two murders that are still uh not clear to this day. Uh, but we're dealing with him. And we had dealt with him a couple times, bought a little dope from him and then bought a gun from his partner. Bought a little dope from his partner and then bought a gun from him and, and it was no problem until it became a problem. So we sent the CI in and they go and they kind of switched it up and which was not unusual. And and again, you know, they're in control of everything. So they switched it and they went into the alley which in savannah we call lanes because we're quite pretentious down here we don't have alleys we have lanes, <laughs> I mean, are just the roads behind the uh house but again you know the lanes are beautiful they have live oak trees with spanish moss and trash cans uh but you ride in there and this kid he's breathing he's you know huffing and puffing and and he's like oh man so our guy rides up to him and he says uh So he pulls out this, uh, I'll never forget it was a Taurus. You know, the same frame as a Beretta 9mm. Yeah. It was a a chrome-plated Taurus with an extended magazine. So RCI is like, ooh, yeah, because we'd been buying high points and Jenkins and, you know, just little pieces of crap. Uh, Some of them didn't even have trigger guards on them. That's how nice firearms we were buying. Uh, But this this chrome-plated Taurus, so RCI is like, He's like, oh, man, he's like, how much for that one? And the guy's like, oh, you like this? You know what time it is? And pointed it right at him. And, man, I I still, that's where the cover of this book uh, comes from. Wow. That is a recreation of the uh, still shot that we got of RCI being robbed. Wow. uh, You got to understand, so we're blocks away. We do have an audio device that's transmitting, but we're hearing oh, that's nice. You know, so yeah. we don't we don't know exactly what's going on. And everything, you know, is going uh according to time. So we're not too concerned about it. And then I get the phone call and my CI calls me, and you know, after you talk to a guy for a while, you kind of get you know, what kind of mood he's in, how everything's going. This guy was like, man, it finally happened. And I said, what finally happened? He's like, they jacked me. I was like, oh, shit. So, you know, I started calling my sergeants. Toby called GB and, you know, thank God they didn't kill him because what a mess that would have been. Yeah. <laughs> of course, we probably would have had that on video too. But at that point, it's too late, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank we, But we got bit pretty hard on that. Uh I think that was the first unkind G- thing GB ever said to me. Uh, but you know, we fucked up. We were, we were, again, we were complacent. We were not. Uh, we should have been closer. We should have been listening. Probably should have had more personnel in the area. Now, you get into the 2020 hindsight thing. So, if we had intervened during the robbery, would he have shot and killed them? Would we have, you know, wow. would we have? Would they have run away? It, it could have gone so bad. So, in the grand scheme of things, we got lucky. Uh, it made an unbelievably strong uh, case, you know. And robbing uh robbing a informant that's in the performance of duties for the federal government is the same statute as robbing a federal agent. So uh, this guy was screwed. I mean, absolutely screwed as far as the crime and that goes. But
0: and the cool book cover.
2: Really... Oh yeah, no, and it, it gave me the greatest still photo and and. Book cover, I think, of all time, but I'm a little prejudiced. But uh, that was when we really started to think about reeling in, like, how bad, what we, how far we were going to keep going. You know, and so we sat down, you know, GB, I remember talking to you about it, uh, you know, and we weren't ready to fold up the operation yet. But we had a lot of guys on the hook, ready to go. But then a, for all intents and purpose, a war broke out between uh, CBV, the Kyler Brownsville guy. So all these guys that uh, we had been dealing with for the past 10, 11 months got into an all out war with uh, guys from the metropolitan neighborhood. I'll never forget his name was Izzy. This kid, he had contracted HIV and had decided I'm going out anyway. So I'm going out in a blaze of glory. And he would come into the neighborhood and shoot. Uh, They put about 38 rounds uh, at each other. Thankfully, nobody was hit, but uh, they shot a lot of cars. They shot up uh, a neighborhood. I remember calling the FBI after this big shootout. So all we had was, of course, nobody saw anything. Nobody knew anything. No, you know, Again, the whole, fuck you, do your job, figure this out. And I'm like, oh, it's gonna be on the poll camera. We know it, this is gonna be great. I know this. Uh, well, this happened on a Thursday night, I'll never forget. So we call the FBI agent, excuse my language. Uh, we call him up and say, Hey, you know, can we get the footage from the? Thing? But he was in training that week, and he's like, "Oh, I won't be back till Tuesday." I'm like, "Dude, can you call somebody in your office?" He's like, "No, I'm the only one with access to this." So the next Tuesday, we get the footage of Truckhead's door, uh, and you know, absolutely completely missed the the all-out gun battle that happened, uh, where we hopefully maybe would have been able to identify people but the thing we spent so much time after the informant rode in and bought dope in both neighborhoods toby and i would go in and we would talk to these dudes like just stand on the corner and be like what's up so they wouldn't be uncomfortable when we were around Uh, you know and i had known a lot of these guys from my time on crime suppression and so them seeing me was not an alarm to them at all uh but we got so much intel from all of that.
1: So I, I could go on for hours, uh, and and all this is in in Kevin's book. So give it a read. Um, very successful operation. Uh, partnerships between state, local, federal. We haven't mentioned that uh, the GBI, the Georgia, Georgia Bureau of Investigation, was a key partner in a lot of this. Um, we got community leaders. We got city government involved. Extremely effective not just in reducing crime but making these places better to live um you know i i left i i promoted and and went to new jersey toby uh promoted um several years after i did um kevin you left the job um and and that's in your first book um but why aren't these types of operations
2: I I don't see it, it you know, and I keep, I keep close tabs on it. it The the thing is, it's the same thing in any bureaucratic thing, you know, federal, state, local. The thing is you go, you have success, but you don't sustain it. You go, you have your success, you pat each other on the back and you go like, you know, like you said, GB, you promoted, you left, uh, Toby promoted uh, a little bit after. I, I got moved out to homicide, which was, you know, that was my ultimate goal of, of going, but nobody came behind me. We didn't go. And, you know, there was a certain chemistry. Uh, there was a certain way of that, but we just didn't sustain it. We looked at it. It was a successful operation. And then we moved on to the next thing. They didn't, you know, they didn't fill the position back. Then when I went to homicide, they didn't take somebody who could have stepped in and done the same thing. Uh, you know, Toby promoted, he went up to Charlotte, There was nobody in in the office left that was a Toby Taylor type guy. The only guy that was really left there was Lou, but he was doing the uh, Lou Velozzi. Uh, And he was, you know, so focused on uh, storefront operations and that kind of thing that, you know, it just it was the chemistry. So uh, could it be done again? Absolutely. Uh, But I think uh, as a nation, we've really kind of shied away from the ass kicking hammer of law enforcement. Because uh, again, the myth and misconception that the police are a racist horde of killers just out targeting people. So now anything that's aggressive policing is frowned upon. Uh, and all we do is the community side. You know, they Every time I look at Facebook or see local departments around, all you see is the cops out with the kids throwing baseballs and, and doing that kind of stuff, which I absolutely encourage. I think it's an essential part of the job. You can't be a good cop without being able to shake hands, kiss babies, and, and uh, get in the community. But they don't respect you if you don't go out and actually do your job. It, that's, the, that's the thing that was so successful about this operation was it was the two-pronged approach. It, actually, you could call it three-pronged because there was the, the actual uh, execution of it. There was the intelligence gathering. And then there was the community-oriented uh, portion. You know, we, we were invested in those neighborhoods. The the best example uh, I can think of is we pulled you're, to you know, Colorado. You know, you're
0: you you're taken away from your book. Nobody's going to want to read your book if you keep telling every every piece of it.
2: Uh, this is this. Is, it, there's so much more in that book than just <laughs> this. Not to mention my amusing anecdotes. I'd buy the book just for that. Yes, but uh, it, where I knew we had it. Where I knew we were on the pulse of these neighborhoods, we were in the thick of it all, is uh, we had a device uh, on one of the hottest neighborhood, uh, hottest intersections in the first neighborhood we worked. And uh, Toby had access to it. I had access to it. I think Toby had access to it on his phone. Uh, It was, you know, when smartphones were just really stepping up. But I could go at my laptop at home and because I had no life <laughs> and didn't think about anything other than putting bad people uh, in jail. 1.30 in the morning, uh, Toby pulls up his phone, looks and is looking at the camera. And there were two guys posted on a corner, which we had you know, made very clear to them after several arrests and conversations that you don't hang out on these corners at one thirty and deal dope because we, we will come get you. And this one kid stepped out, easily recognizable because of his posture and the way he walked. And we knew him so well just by looking at him. We also had his cell phone number. So at 1.30 in the morning, sitting in his living room, federal agent, Toby Taylor, called this guy and said, hey, what are you doing on my corner? And you could see the guy in the film going, "Whoa, where are you? He's like, dude, I'm everywhere. He's like, get off my corner. And the dude said, all right, hung up the phone and walked inside just disappeared so he did a patrolman's job he cleared a corner without even having to be in the neighborhood just because he knew who the guy was knew how to get in touch with him and that guy on the corner knew he wasn't playing you know i truly believe he thought if if he had stood out there we'd we'd have come out there and cracked him and and they knew it knowing who what, when uh... and where it's just like gb said it's it's actionable intelligence and being able to do something with it but that's That's the place. And I
0: think I think that's I think that's the key to it is not just intelligence, but really good intelligence is being able to do something about it. And you clearly have described that. Uh, We can't thank you enough for coming on. Where could people find your book?
2: Uh, The best place. You know, it is currently the number one new release in uh, the law and witness uh, category on Amazon. Uh, I, I right. can shoot you a link to it, but it's also available if you want a signed copy, uh, a fancy signed, signed copy, uh, you can go to my website, which is www.the1108store.com.
0: Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes as well for folks to have that. Um, how about any other places people follow you? Yeah. You're on any of the uh, I'm all LinkedIn over, or anything?
2: I'm all over Facebook and Instagram and and you know, it's Kevin Grogan on Facebook or, uh, my f- book, Facebook page is black sheep, white cop Savannah exposed, which is my first book, another Amazon, uh, bestselling book. Uh, but you know, wow. it, it, if you're, uh, the coolest thing about these books to me is I think in the post Ferguson era, you know, new cops that are coming in, you know, guys. And when I say cops, I mean, on all levels, state, local, federal, uh, you know, these guys come in and they're so used to the scrutiny of the post-Ferguson uh, thing. These these books uh, give young guys coming in, young guys and girls coming into the profession, kind of hope that, hey, maybe someday we'll be able to go back and do police work. And I think it's cyclical. I think people are tired of getting tired of the shit where we're defunding police departments and we're, we're taking our foot off the gas. Uh, we're seeing spikes in crimes. We're sure as hell seeing it in Savannah. Uh, so I think it'll come back where people get tired of it and let the cops go out and do their job again. Uh, you know, and one of the big messages I have in ruffian is, you know, we have to address what the real problems are. If you're looking at violent crime in America, you're not talking about cops killing civilians, unarmed civilians, which if you turn on CNN or MSNBC, they lead you to believe that that's the major problem. It's not, it's bad guys killing other bad guys in it at a level that's just, uh, to me, is mind-boggling. But the thing I want to say to young and aspiring new police officers is, hey, it it gets better. Keep going out uh, and doing your job every day because I sure as hell appreciate it. Uh, I don't understand how anybody after 2014 would look at the TV and see what's going on and say, hey, you know what? I'm signing up to go do that. But the fact that they do, I have all the respect in the world for anybody that uh, takes the job, picks up a job, picks up a gun and a badge and goes out and and does their job to the best of their ability. nothing but love and respect for that.
0: Well, thank you, sir. Well said. Well, gentlemen, have a great night. And uh, thanks again for coming on the In the Chill of the Night.
2: I appreciate right. you having me. Thanks, Jeff. Good to see you, GB.